Now is the time to take the next step in your leadership journey. TU Dublin's internationally accredited executive MBA is a program of personal growth and career transformation. Our graduates have transitioned to senior leadership roles and have established and scaled their own businesses. Join our executive MBA and achieve your leadership potential. Applications are now open. Visit tudublin.ie forward slash MBA. Welcome to Pod's Own Country. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and we're back for another week giving you all the political news from around Yorkshire. Now, first of all, today you're going to hear me chatting to Wakefield Conservative MP Imran Ahmad Khan. And Imran's a really interesting character, right? Because he was elected in December, uh, last December, nearly a year ago. I can't believe it was a year ago that I was following candidates around Yorkshire in the rain. Um, but Recently, he's joined this Northern research group that's been set up by Jake Berry, the former Northern Powerhouse Minister, and they're really holding the government's feet to the fire, is how they describe it, on all these promises over improving life in the North. So we'll hear what he's got to say. Um, And then Rob, our political editor, is going to join us later, and he's chatting to one of our local democracy reporters, George Tor, about everything that's going on on the ground. So that's what we've got in store for you this week, and I hope you enjoy. It's really, really good to have you on Pod's Own Country. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Jerry. It's always good to talk. And we've been chatting a little bit this week, kind of back and forth, haven't we? Because it's all been all about levelling up again. Now, for for listeners of Pod's Own Country, you hear me talk about levelling up quite a lot. And sometimes it's a phrase which cannot have too much meat on the bones. And it's not always been clear what it means. But we're getting more of an idea, which is really brilliant. But... I guess to start off, Imran, what what does levelling up mean to you? Well, I think levelling up is not simply about pouring investment into the north of England, welcome though that is. It's not just about filling our northern towns and cities with concrete cranes and porter cabins. Hmm. There are three stages of development that constitute levelling up. The first is building the foundations. Second is strengthening the focus. And the third is realising the ambition. And that's why I'm proud to be a member and support the Northern Research Group, Mm -hmm. because it's a very supportive way of holding the government's feet to the fire to ensure that the mighty mandate that the British people gave the Conservative Party is realised. Because all too often people talk about the December 2019 election. Can you believe it's a year ago now? Oh, can you undo? I can't believe it. Can you? Whole 12 months. Does it feel like that to you? Surely not. Um, It feels quite a lot longer. Uh, uh, People talk about that election, about being a one-issue election, uh, Brexit, if you've forgotten. Um, But I have a caveat, uh, because it wasn't just about Brexit or the unpopularity of Mr Corbyn, but I think more than anything, it was a final cry against regional inequality and of people in the North and across the country being distant and feeling a Pacific wide chasm between them and their elected representatives who they never, who they thought were no longer actually representing them. And so with that 
belief in regional inequality and being forgotten. That's why levelling up, I think, resonates. And so I mentioned about the three stages, building foundation, strengthening the focus, and realising the ambition. So what's building the foundations? Well, I've been working recently very closely with WPI Strategy, mm. and they've produced a series of really excellent reports, uh, commissioned by Tesco. Um, oh, really? How interesting. Yeah, uh, uh, on levelling up and more broadly on business rates and um, a marriage of two excellent pieces of work, uh, which I honestly think are worth looking at for every listener. Now, I want to start when I talk about their work and about levelling up with where my constituency, Wakefield, is now. And I think Wakefield in many ways is emblematic of many of the uh, small cities and towns in the north of England, across Yorkshire, that uh, lent their vote to the Conservative Party and to Boris in order to stop the inequality uh, of our region elsewhere. Mm. So WPI strategies got a levelling up index. And there's three really painful truths that they evidence. The first in Wakefield is that financial dependency is 27% higher than the England and Wales average Uh, That's focused on job seekers' allowance and universal credit claims. The second is that deprivation is 21% higher than the England average. And thirdly, that empty commercial properties are a full third higher than the average for England and Wales. Now, that's bleak. Yeah, that's grim, isn't it? it? And so there's a lot of work to be done. And it's an area that is Wakefield. Um, and indeed much of the urban part of Yorkshire, uh, composed of areas that are currently dependent, but this is particularly true of Wakefield, on the provision of jobs by the state. Mm. And through years of successive failed policies enacted by governments, local and national, of all stripes. So I'm not making a party political point here. It's been decades and decades of successive failure of policies. And I think that these three data points, these three figures are intrinsically linked, uh, uh, but it's a distinct culture um, that seems to have deified public administration and the burden of local democracy. And that's what's strangling my city of Wakefield at present. Close to 30%, 30% of everyone employed across Wakefield is actually employed in some form or other of public administration. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, these national structural issues that entrench regional inequality are, as I've said, essentially, we've got to face up to them as we're not going to change it, decades and decades of policy failure. Um, and so why has there been that kind of policy failure, do you think? And like you say, you're quite right, it has been governments of all stripes why hasn't this been addressed so far is it kind of lack of will or just not knowing how to i think it's a a lack of understanding a lack of will and again these are complex issues mm-hmm. so i'll give you a really complex thing that is causes a problem that third point i told you about about 33 percent higher than england and wales average for empty commercial properties yes. in wakefield so i think one of the large reasons for that and it's evidenced is look at business rates. Mm -hmm. Over the last 20 years, 
there's been a huge, uh, 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 it's a huge determinant, business rates, of why there's so many empty commercial properties across the north of England. And it outstrips the south by a huge degree. And it's because our burden of property-based taxes with uh, uh, business rates and so on is so much higher in places like Yorkshire than uh, the affluent parts of the south. Mm. So WPI and uh, Strategy and Tesco, they put forward a really novel part of, of an overall solution. So it is complex, which looked at a reduction in business rates by creating a revenue-neutral policy that would substitute the existing receipts as they stand today on business rates. Now, the listener may raise a eyebrow uh, about the altruistic or not nature of a large corporate supermarket, <laughs> and, and, and with good reason, and with good reason. But they were specific exemptions in their modelling for SMEs, small and medium enterprises, okay. and online retail uh, under a specific threshold. So what a lot of larger retailers realize is that, like Tesco um, uh, and Asdo and so on, is that their utility within the market is as a role, as part of a broader ecosystem, alongside an independent offering on the high street uh, in creating an overall commercial experience that marries utility and enjoyment, dependent on the requirements of the individual at one point in time. However, I would actually go a lot further than their uh, very interesting solution because I would further, I would, I would reduce business rates even further um, beyond the point of uh, uh, past neutrality uh, and revenue neutrality uh, because it's an antiquated and largely screwed system mm -hmm. whereby the only reason for its continued existence I can see is the failure to come up with another so um, uh, the tax foundation report that I was reading, uh, which is a different report using 2018 data, there the UK has surprisingly, it shocked me when I first read it, um, uh, the highest reliance on property tax of any European OECD nation oh, by quite, quite a way. 12.3% of all tax revenues in the UK are through property tax collections. In Germany, it's a mere 2.7%. And shockingly, because we've all heard about French property taxes, <laughs> the French are behind us at 8.9%. Oh, wow. Okay, I see. So looking for a like-for-like -like replacement of business rates is basically folly. And it doesn't consider the societal and technological changes and the relationship that commerce has with, with property. So business rates are, but one piece of the puzzle of a comprehensive tax reform of the United Kingdom for both property and the wider commercial environment. So two questions need to be answered regarding property. Um, one, how do we deploy extant buildings to best use? And two, how do we ensure further construction and development relieves the, um, the chronic issues at the heart of the housing and planning system mm. that are preventative glass ceiling for a generation of professionals and young families? So right now, I really do believe we've got an opportunity to fundamentally smash the status quo and truly incentivize entrepreneurialism and as the method through which to recover from the pandemic. And so you know, there's the great risk and the harm the pandemic has done, but there's opportunity because 
as I as I've tried to make clear, I hope it is. It's a complex and dull, boring issue to many people. Property rates and so on. But if we're going to deal with something as fundamental as the death of our high streets and the impact of the of business rates being a part of that uh, disease, then you've got to actually come up with solutions. And there's no, as I've tried to make clear, no simple easy solution. It's about lots of little bits to change the overall plan. Um, and and I do apologise to the listener having to. Uh, 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 listen to me going droning on on possibly boring tax policy, but it, it does <laughs> not matter. At all. Not at all, because you're right, it does matter. And you say kind of that it might be dull and boring, but these things are important. And I think the point is, is that maybe there was, you know, it goes back to what we were saying about why it hasn't been addressed. There weren't, there weren't people that knew about this stuff and knew the impact of it before kind of December who were banging on about it to, to, to talk about that. And it sounds like there are people like yourself who really get it, are really entrenched in it, kind of banging that drum to government right now. Well, I think, Jerry, I would never argue with you. I, I know far too well to do that. <laughs> in all of my wonderful conversations with me, I've, I've generally agreed with you. Um, and if I haven't, you've got me to agree it by the end of them. <laughs> <laughs> On that kind of thread, you're a member, aren't you, of this Northern Research Group that you mentioned? And I know there's what oh, more than sixty Conservative MPs who are part of this. And I think it's around seventy or so. Seventy now. Oh well, the membership's increased since I last checked. That's what we like to hear. So um, the majority. <laughs> and um, you know, we know that there have been letters written to the Prime Minister, and that you met with him virtually, nonetheless, because he's self-isolating this week. Twice um, in the last two days. <laughs> there we go. He's very keen to speak to you, obviously. What what is the kind of I guess what's the point of the Northern Research Group? You mentioned kind of holding holding feet to the fire. Is it really to press these issues that we're talking about today home to those in Whitewall and make sure they're aware of them? Well the the wonderful thing is, and you were asking why has there been these long term problems, I honestly put it down to the political topography, the political mm-hmm. map of Yorkshire and the north of England. For too long, it's been a sea of red or a red wall. Mm-hmm. Now that has uh, come down, you've got people who no longer believe in or follow discredited Keynesian economics, um, but actually have a commercial appreciation, understand that the, the, the engine for this country is business. And there's only two ways that we can pay for a first-class national health service, a first-rate education system, brilliant defences, intelligence services, police and judiciary. And that comes either from revenues, tax revenues from business, or tax revenues from households. And the majority of households derive their businesses by be, their income by being employed by business. Mm-hmm. So essentially, business at the heart of it. So rather than being sceptical of business, hating free enterprise, hating the private sector, always regarding them as something slightly un, uh, uh, an undiscovered beast that we're a little bit scared of, a Cerberus in the cupboard, uh, uh, I am unashamedly pro-business, mm-hmm. unashamedly support private enterprise and encourage it. And I believe that the solutions to the biggest problems we deal with as a city, as a county, as a country, are actually found those solutions in private enterprise. A wonderful example of that is just right now with uh, the vaccines that hopefully will be online very shortly, which is entirely because of big pharma and private enterprise. Hmm. Indeed, to such a degree that um, uh, with Pfizer, 
and BioNTech, they refused to actually take revenues or monies from the United States warp speed program because uh, their chief executive said he doesn't want any form of, and I quote, bureaucracy strangling them. <laughs> uh, uh, and and you know, they've come up with it and all of these vaccines. So private sector is very important. Now, the reason now we have got so many conservatives across the North is that you have a change of thinking where you be- we believe in opportunities, pathway to opportunity. We know that those opportunities are found by people learn getting skills, getting educations, having the drive and the ambition to actually achieve something and realize ambitions, improve their lives. Um, and, 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 and we are there. I think there's few people who understand or wish the better for their constituents than the member of parliament. Mm. And so the Northern Research Group has got, as I say, a great number of us uh, 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 members of parliament, many of us, most of us probably newly elected, who have knocked on thousands of doors, continue to speak with our constituents, deal with our local chambers of commerce and businesses and so on. And we know what their problems are and the opportunities. And we're there to advocate for them. And also we know how they can get on. So now we've got the huge lobbying might of all of these, I would say, right-minded Tories uh, in the governing party, providing real detail to the overarching strategic view that the Prime Minister so well delineated in the general election. And we're there to help focus and direct so that that despite a global pandemic and despite all of the other issues uh, that the government has to contend with, that this remains the central thrust for us in the North in delivering the levelling up agenda. So uh, the initial reports were entirely mistaken, sort of trying to suggest that uh, the NRG was some form of anti-Boris movement. We're there Yes, to help hold the feet of the government to the fire, but to enable them to be strength to the elbow by being able to direct and encourage and advise how best to get this done. That was uh, going to be one of my questions, actually, because one of your colleagues, um, Scarborough Whitby MP Robert Goodwill, when I spoke to him after the meeting the other night, said, you know, this is a very collegiate group. We are supportive of the government. And actually, the quote was that the NRG is nothing like the ERG, which, as we well, no, it was a little bit more um, rebellious, let's say. Um, I I, I read that article and I was delighted with it because the second part of your headline, you used the quote from me. I did, yes, (laughs) yes, 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 I did, because we spoke after that meeting as well. But but everyone I spoke to from the group from Yorkshire that night was was very happy and felt very, very kind of positive about the situation. There wasn't any kind of rumblings of dissent that I I picked up. There was none, and that's why I told you it was true Mm -hmm. that the mood of the parliamentary party is lifted and there's it's, 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 there's a return, I see it, a return to the exuberance of the new year mm. where we had you know, uh, all together with this wonderful, radical, imaginative, daring, ambitious programme for the North, for Yorkshire and the United Kingdom. And COVID has uh, you know, interrupted lots. Mm. But now, as I told you, we see light at the end of the COVID tunnel and actually... You, the fact that the you know, the entire economy is going to require such great assistance and help and to be restarted, um, in a way, 
is an opportunity for the North. Because so much has to be done anyway, let's now remove these structural and regional inequalities by providing a, 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 a fair, a fairer, a greater share to the North now, so then we don't have the uh, inequality that we were talking about earlier. And, you know, um, a very important part of uh, uh, the second part of levelling up, which I was telling you about, is the focus mm. and strengthening the focus. And for that, connectivity is key to levelling up. Mm. And so I'll just tell you in a very, very, what affects me in Wakefield. You know, um, I'm working with Dan Jarvis, uh, the Labour Member of Parliament and my very near neighbour for Barnsley Central. Yeah. Um, um, and, and the city uh, uh, region mayor for Sheffield, and I, I, a man I have great time and respect for. Uh, I like him a great deal. Mm. Um, he's he's clever enough, smart enough, and bright enough, and uh, commercially minded enough to be a Tory. But I'm sure he won't. Like, <laughs> I'm sure he won't thank me for saying that. I was gonna say, I'm sure he'll thank you for that comment. I'm sure greatly. he won't thank me for saying that. But I think his majority is secure, even uh, even to withstand my praise. But, <laughs> Um, I, I'm working with him to um, uh, uh, on a on an East Midlands line uh, connecting Barnsley to Wakefield. Okay. Um, uh, it's a it's a wonderful journey. It's one my mother made. She was born in Barnsley and now lives in Wakefield. Um, I, I think there'll be lots of demands for one way tickets south to north. But there you go. Uh, and then, <laughs> uh, and then uh, we're also I'm also currently reassessing the feasibility studies to reopen a station at the Healy Mills site in Osset, ahead of the third round of Ideas Fund. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a case put forward in 2009 in the Connecting Communities Report, which stated that Osset was the largest town in Yorkshire without a railway station. And it has an impressive benefit-cost ratio of 9.8. So um, I really think we should go ahead with that. Sadly, in 2009, had I been Member of Parliament and read that report, I would have made sure that case went all the way through and we got a railway station. So let's hope that I can use the 2009 data and make the case now, uh, despite all the massive competing demands on the public pass, because um, I think Osset definitely deserves a railway station. It should not be the largest town in Yorkshire without one. And it would massively connect up the west part of my constituency to the main city and actually uh, uh, beyond. And when I say beyond, what I think is essential to Yorkshire and certainly to Wakefield, is uh, a rail service that really links Wakefield to Manchester Airport, uh, Liverpool, Huddersfield, and, and, and Manchester. Mm. Uh, from Wakefield, we have wonderful connections to uh, Leeds. You can get there in eight or 12 minutes mm -hmm. uh, uh, from, from Westgate uh, Station. Um, but that, if we had HS3 or uh, the Transpennine, or whatever, we're going to have that super fast new rail service, um, to be able to have Wakefield going to Manchester Airport in 40 minutes, or 35 minutes to Piccadilly, or thereabouts, uh, would be a real change for northern connectivity. And so I'm massively pushing for that, and I think it's an essential stream. I mean, if people want, they can even allow it to continue on to Leeds. I've got no problem with that. Uh, <laughs> if they want it, if they want the, it. <laughs> the, the two-city two of, of, of West Yorkshire anyway is, of course, Wakefield. Um, of course. I'm still sore that they took our diocese away and transplanted it in Leeds, uh, which um, the Romans originally uh, named it, and it means that, 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 that uh, 
it's not a particularly pleasant place. I think that's the actual Latin meaning. But uh, I, I've always gone for the city of Wakefield. Uh, but Leeds is a very pleasant place. I love it. I'm only, I'm only teasing. I feel a uh, campaign coming on. It's not Lancashire. <laughs> that's what I can say. Uh, uh, but, so all that sounds really, really positive, right? So the stuff that you could do locally and the stuff that you can lobby for nationally is really, really good. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a vision that a lot of us would share. But what happens if the government doesn't start delivering on these things you know we've spoken about how there's a collegiate attitude you're all very supportive but is it if would the if, if that is the case and the government maybe doesn't follow through on its promises does the does the nrg then become more challenging well there's two things here um naturally i cannot even begin to imagine a time when a conservative government led by boris johnson would not maintain its so uh, uh, manifesto commitments to the north mm-hmm. um, it absolutely shall it will the idea it won't is 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 one i it is it is um not a possibility it's beyond the realm of possibility i could get into some sort of almost Rumsfeldian talk about known unknowns and unknown unknowns and uh, impossibilities that are beyond the realm of possibility but i i'll save your viewers any of that uh, esoteric nonsense uh but uh, what is key though isn't just simply the state so it's an important point so the state is very very important in you know uh, supporting private uh, uh, regions to help connect us better and providing the framework, the guarantees uh, uh, to connect places up. But the private sector is very, very important too. And what we need is public funds and then allow a tax policy and a deregulation of our economy and business that then allows private sector money to flow where the vanguard may have been public sector. Mm. Um, And for Wakefield... The case for the public sector and the private sector is very, very simple. It's a, it, the case for Wakefield to be a, a, a centre of public and private investment, both British and overseas, uh, is one that makes itself. Uh, we must market Wakefield more effectively. Our logistical prowess and position at the crossroads of the kingdom. I've renamed, I've, I've, I've been trying to rebrand Wakefield the crossroads of the kingdom as it is. You know, uh, uh, with the A1, the M1, the M62, um, 90% of the population of England is within a three-hour or so drive. London is less than two hours away by by train. Uh, our cultural experience, nowhere outside of London, can boast such world-class cultural venues. And we need, uh, uh, such as the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, which has a, a whole forest of Gormleys, uh, Moors, and uh, Barbara Hepworths, mm. amongst others, uh, you know, a pre-Edinburgh fringe would be perfect for Wakefield post-COVID, where the the, the shows go on. Uh, we need to create attractive, a really attractive, inward investment climate, and a more favourable business environment. But how? How do we do that? So um, this is where the public sector, along with the private sector, need to actually have a joined-up approach. Mm-hmm. And of course, for that, the government needs to take the lead. So I spoke earlier about the three stages of development for the levelling up agenda. Mm-hmm. The first being building the foundations, second, strengthening the focus. Mm-hmm. And this is where we come to the final stage, realising 
the ambition. Mm. And so to realize the ambition, the most important thing, the alpha and omega, is allowing our people, our, our citizens, my constituents, the people across Yorkshire and the north, to acquire the skills they need and we need as a country and that they need to get high-paying, high-value, quality jobs. And so, you know, when I knocked on the doors a year ago and I speak to my constituents now, it broke my heart and it still makes tears, tears at me. When I meet young people, actually even middle-aged people, where there is no hope, they've lost hope. Yes. And without hope, you can't have aspiration. And without aspiration, there are no achievements. And I refuse to accept that the story of Wakefield or the glorious story of our United Kingdom has no future. We have to keep those pages inscribed with new achievements. And how do we do that? We do that by encouraging people to believe in themselves, to believe in their city, to believe in their country, and then providing them with opportunities, the opportunity to get relevant skills so they can either get the jobs that we, we seek to attract to Wakefield and across the north, or they can actually set up their own businesses. Mm-hmm. Small and medium enterprises you know, are, 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 employ uh, the largest number of people in the, in, in, in the economy. Uh, they're absolutely crucial. So it's how we rebuild this opportunity. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, again, it's not a party political point. I believe our education that we offer young people is not fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not simply about bringing back grammar schools. They were great in their time and place. Um, it's about a whole new way of learning. And it's radical and it's difficult. And it has to take a, it's a great deal of bravery to do this. But, you know, in the iPhone or the telephone that you use right now, there's probably... More, there's certainly more information in there, my access of my fingertips or my command with my voice, than in the entire Library of Congress, House of Commons Library, and the Bodleian Library put together. Mm-hmm. So it's no longer about learning facts. What we need to be encouraging people to do is problem solve. Mm-hmm. Soft skills, they call them soft skills, but I think nothing's harder. Um, how to deal with others, how to sell something, how to describe something how to explain a concept. These are what are the skills that our young people require. The facts are like just the, not even the punctuation. That's what you insert to evidence. It's the skills. And our system of education doesn't do that. We were created, it was a ghastly disaster, uh, 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 in my opinion. When we converted all the polytechnics, it was, and I believe it was John Major, Conservative Prime Minister, who did this, mm-hmm. converted all the polytechnics into universities. Mm, yes. Leeds Beckett used to be Leeds, uh, Leeds uh, um, Polytechnic. Mm-hmm. And up and down the kingdom, this occurred. I believe 
that for most things, and I'm, I'm fortunate, I have a few degrees from some of the best places uh, you could go. Um, but I tell you, everything I really hold valuable and that I really believe are the lessons that are uh, equip me in the, for the world are things I've learned with people in the real world, with work or travel or experience, not necessarily academically. So you've got to teach people how to think for themselves. And that is going to be a big shift. I mean, at the moment in Wakefield, uh, uh, we have some really good education establishments, both privately through Wakefield Girls High School, uh, Queggs, Silcoats, and uh, uh, although um, I, I'm in Old Silcotian and uh, my chief of staff went to Queggs and said so to my brother, and they always told me it was an inferior school, but there we go. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, you know, Wakefield College is superb. Um, and I, I'll tell you about when I talk about a new form of education. Kappa College, I visited them, mm-hmm. and they are led by an amazing leadership team. At the moment, they're in temporary, uh, uh, you know, uh, they're not in their permanent accommodation. The government has funded, and they're building right now, right outside Wakefield Westgate Station, the superstructures there, multi-million pound, gorgeous edifices emerging uh, from Westgate, uh, which is going to house the young uh, men and women who go to uh, uh, Kappa College. But Kappa College is presently in a, 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 a Trinity Hall uh, across the road in Wakefield. And they have this wonderful, inspiring, brilliant leadership where you walk in and you just feel inspired. Mm-hmm. And you see it in the young people who go there. Kappa uh, draw a large enough portion of their uh, young boys and girls and men and women that study there, from some of the most, what are thought of to be some of the most deprived areas of Wakefield. Yes. Yet, they're in the top 1% of schools. Mm. Uh, they've got a 19, uh, no, 100%, I was going to steal a percent off them. They have a 100% pass rate, I believe, oh, wow. uh, 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 a, a to C, in their examinations. That's impressive, isn't it? Um, and they teach dance and music and theatrical arts, and yet they have fabulous academic qualifications. So it's about inspiring people, teaching people in a new way. Um, with, with them in mind, and uh, I'm, I'm currently analysing all the existing skills offering within Wakefield, and what further institutions can be created alongside uh, 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 providers that are already there or providing new uh, education facilities. So, for example, on the back of uh, defence spending uh, that's been uh, announced, Mm. I think it'd be worth um, floating the idea, and I was at the uh, United Kingdom Defence Academy at Scrivenham and speaking to the commandant there about the idea of maybe setting up a preschool in Wakefield. Uh, uh, supported by uh, the Defence Academy because, of course, Wakefield is already a great reservoir of for the armed forces yes. and talent for the armed forces. Uh, I have, in the Wakefield district, there are all 4,000, off the top of my head, 4,360 veterans. Oh, right. Um, and that's those who are registered and have returned after their service to the nation mm-hmm. uh, living in Wakefield. And the... Uh, I believe that if we had a school that 
was a technical uh, highlighted and emphasized the technical skills that we require in how highly uh, professional armed forces and when we think of the armed forces and with the government's announcement of the extra funding for armed forces we are all familiar with fighting in the air on the land and upon the sea and indeed with our fabulous submariners under the seas but also the two other battle, theatres of battle and warfare that we must conquer are space and cyber. Mm, yes. And so if we had a school taking young people, instilling in them the uh, uh, values and the discipline of the armed forces and also the technical skills required in this highly professional, organised uh, and technical service of the nation, that will give, equip people not only with the ability to join our armed forces and to continue that great um, history and uh, uh, precedent that Wakefield and Yorkshire has with supporting our armed forces in the defence of the realm, but also that the same skills required it, for example, by um, uh, Ring, who may do metalwork that help to uh, parts that, uh, that they produce in Wakefield, near the Chantry Chapel, are on HMS Queen Elizabeth and HMS Prince of Wales and indeed on the uh, the Eurofighter. Yes. Um, so you, those same skills are required in other businesses that we seek to attract. And this comes again to going back to your point, um, how we get the private sector to come in. Because if you've got the necessary skills, then it makes my case as, the, as an advocate, an ambassador for Wakefield, which I want to be, to attract investment and business, both from within the United Kingdom and from outside of the United Kingdom, into Wakefield. So we build, whether it's manufacturing jobs or um, uh, s services, whatever they may well be, we get those businesses and those jobs into Wakefield. And the way you get those is by actually having people and a constant supply of people with the skills that business and industry commerce requires to employ them. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so that's why not only by giving people ambition individually, young people and others, but also allowing them to realize that ambition by allowing them to actually have the skills, but then also with those skills, it attracts the investment where they get employment and the state's important with that, but in the end, the private sector is the most important thing. So the, what it is, is about us making sure that the private sector and the public sector work hand, arm in arm for one purpose and one purpose alone. And that purpose is the general well-being and uplift of the citizens of the United Kingdom. And for me, my constituents in Wakefield, they are, they are central and key and this again is going to sound a little bit nerdy <laughs> and i beg forgiveness we like nerdy on pod's own country <laughs> but you know the unit of analysis that is employed in uh, government delivery needs to be changed at the moment the unit of analysis um, is groups areas uh, i believe the unit of analysis employed needs to be one the individual the number one it, and we, whether it's in regards to pensions, healthcare provision, uh, uh, education, every aspect, if we, can, we have the technology now, 
We just need to employ it better. And this is, again, where the private sector is great because most public sector uh, technology uh, uh, projects have not had uh, the uh, best outcomes. Uh, they're not known for their great efficacy. But we can build up. So the, the citizen becomes the focus. And so the unit of analysis is indeed one. And this is how we actually rebalance the relationship between state and citizen at a time when the state is involving itself more and more into every aspect of human life, where you can shop, what you can buy, who you can be around your table for Christmas, who you can sleep with in this time of COVID. Mm -hmm. Every aspect of human life is now governed. It's really important temporarily, and that will change as soon as we, and as I said, lights at the end of the tunnel. But when the Prime Minister and we Conservatives talk about the uh, recalibrating the relationship between state and citizen, and the state is servant, is slave, and the citizen is king, is master, how do we absolutely do this when actually the requirements of the state are growing? So when the people say they want something to be delivered, then it's our it is a responsibility of legislators and the government to ensure that it's provided. Uh, so how do we actually make sure that the state, the citizen, is the master? Mm -hmm. I think technology's got a big role to do with that. So if we tailor everything to the citizen, and it's and he then he or she becomes the focus, the object, and the state is simply serving him or her. And that's why with technology, we can absolutely reset and repurpose the state and its relationship with the citizen who is, after all, the boss. So and that's really interesting to me, that idea of the citizen being the boss. You're quite right, because the, and the, re the reason the concept is interesting to me, I think, is because yourself included but a lot of the new intake from last year are i wouldn't call you rebellious maybe i would privately um, but you could call me far worse than that privately uh, not, not rebellious against the government that's not what i quite mean but all of you in your intake i, I get the feeling are quite you know i've seen you stand up in the commons and really speak for Wakefield, which sometimes has been at odds with what the government has been saying. And is that concept of, you know, the citizen being king, the citizen being the boss, is that what kind of comes through there when when you do that? Because obviously you're all party, you know, you're all party politicians. You are supportive of the government. You've said that. But it does seem like the real key to your mission, if, it, if, you, if you like, as a member of parliament, is to deliver for your citizens, for your constituents. Well, Jerry, once again, you're just demonstrating your great deep levels of perception. <laughs> uh, I think at the end, it's not so much that we're rebellious. We've got our own minds, but then again, yes. we believe in the individual. Uh, 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 and you know, the society is made up of individuals. And, and so we believe in society and the individual, both. One, you can't have one without the other. The society is like the beach and the individual is like the grain of sand. You know, it's, it, it composes. Um, if you had a beach without the grains of sand, you're walking on glass. Uh, <laughs> and those who live in glass houses. But anyway, that's a tangent. Um, it's also because so many of us are. From Redcar to Wakefield, Yorkshiremen. And in Yorkshire, we like to call, as I always say, a spade a shovel. <laughs> uh, and, and not only that, not only is it our 
you know, frank speaking way and nature uh, and the fact that we don't think we're worse than anybody else so we can tell anybody else what where where to go or what we think because our constituents in Wakefield are every bit as good I would argue far better than people from Winchester or anywhere else uh, uh, but it's also because we've seen far too often there's too many examples of Labour using the North Labour using Yorkshire as a place to transplant their big figures who don't really actually care about the North and they didn't listen or respond or represent fully as their most important singular priority their constituents. For me, a local lad from Wakefield, schooled in Wakefield, whose father was a doctor at the Pinderfields Hospital, whose mother was a nurse there, whose grandmother was a night sister there, whose great-grandfather was a Methodist preacher in the area. You know, um, Wakefield is everything that I'm fighting for. I think there's a great deal to be said of having candidates who are from a place, for a place, and simply, it's not a place to have to go under sufferance. It's a place that is home. And so that gives you a certain degree of confidence and passion, and you're never going to let them down. And and also, if you don't do, if you're not a true representative, and you don't actually represent the people, you're going to be kicked out. Mm. And that's been shown. You know, uh, uh, when we had people who, you know, uh, uh, only fair were the Democrats, which we had, uh, before the last election, where they only seemed to agree with the majority when the majority agreed with them, and otherwise they were you know regarded as a stupid or racist or downright wrong, which was which was and that that chasm that split was shown with Brexit, mm, yes. um, and 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 that again is having people who aren't local, who aren't connected viscerally and in the most sanguine of ways to their own constituencies and constituents, um, there, there is a disconnect. And I think what you're talking about now isn't just as Northern Tory MPs. It's because we are Northern Tory MPs. It is because we represent and we are from the places and the people we represent. And it's indivisible. It's possible to split the atom, but it's not possible to split me from Wakefield or, for example, Jacob Young from Redcar. <laughs> More than that, they'll call your mum in the supermarket, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what a note to end on. Um, It's been a really interesting chat, Imran, because there's so much to cover on this, and I'm sure we'll be talking again kind of in the coming, well, weeks and years, I'm sure, because I'm not going anywhere, and it doesn't sound like you are either. (laughs) If if, if you left Westminster, I'd have to uh, review my my, my permanence. Of course, I'm kidding. I would stay Uh, as long as the people of Wakefield. As long as the people of Wakefield... Uh, make it clear that I can s- serve them and wish me to serve them. I'm their servant. Absolutely. And it's the greatest honour of my life to be so. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been lovely to chat. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, now let's hear from Rob, who is chatting to George Tor. Over to you, Rob. So it's that part of the show in which we focus in on a different area of Yorkshire and what's got local politicians and political figures talking with the help of the Local Democracy Reporter Scheme. Uh, so I'm pleased to be joined today by George Tor, who is the Local Democracy Reporter for Doncaster, but also I think reports on the sometimes on the work of the 
Sheffield City Region Combined Authority and the uh, the Metro Mayor there. So it's 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 been a busy old time to be uh, covering Doncaster, George. How how are you doing with it all? Good morning, Rob. Yeah, I'm doing okay. It's uh, a difficult time for all of us. We're all in the same boat in some respects, but uh, you know, I think with uh, myself and others, you know, have done a great job uh, in in the times we're in. Uh, we are plugging along and keeping the you know the political wheels uh, turning as it were, keeping people informed. That's what we're here to do. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's been a difficult one, but you know, we are, you know, we are getting through it. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And yes, getting, getting through it is pretty much all we can do really, isn't it? Uh, so you, you, you've highlighted five of the things, the big things going on in Doncaster at the moment. And, and it just reminds me really of how busy a patch it is and some of the big news stories that we've been reporting on, sort of political news stories in the past few months. Um, obviously it was, this time a year ago, uh, South Yorkshire was still recovering from the uh, catastrophic uh, flooding, which left large parts of the uh, the, the Doncaster and other areas uh, underwater. And that's that's still a pretty live political issue now, isn't it? What, what's what's going on with that? Yes, Rob. I mean, one year on from the floods. It, it... Talking about Doncaster specifically, I know it, it did affect other parts of South Yorkshire, but obviously in my patch, it had a massive a massive effect. Um, there were floods like this in 2007. They were told then that, you know, this was a one in a hundred years uh, event and it, you know, it happened roughly 12 years later. Um, large waves of the borough were flooded, especially along the River Don. Uh, Bentley and the village of Fish Lake in the north of the borough absolutely decimated. It was it was really hard to see when I went out there, especially to those two areas of just how how deep it was in some parts you physically had to get um, a dinghy to get to some parts of uh, Fish Lake, for example. But moving to Bentley and stuff, the kind of um, the high population centre along the Don, not far from Doncaster Town Centre, um, that was really hit hard. Quite a high number of people in that area along the Don uh, were really affected. Now, kind of fast forwarding a year on, and obviously the flood water has gone but the kind of the the memory of that and the the daily reminder really of kind of how people have really struggled to try and get back on the feet is this battle with the insurance companies now the problem in with uh the insurance companies as such with terms of getting insurance getting home insurance for renewal and such forth was when people were flooded in 2007 everyone had everyone had home insurance you know this was a given there was some rumbling some insurance companies in 2007 about paying out for certain stuff they did that, but once, if you were a property in 2007 who were flooded, especially in the Bentley area, which was also hit in 2007, when you went for renewal for your home insurance, the problem was is that you were getting absolutely astronomical uh, home home insurance renewal quotes. People couldn't afford it. It's not, it is, it, the area isn't the most affluent in Doncaster, just to put it lightly. So you know, people, you know, working class people in that area couldn't afford I think uh, I spoke to Mayor Doncaster it's about six months ago about this, and she said that she was aware of one family who were quoted seven and a half thousand pounds for home insurance renewal quote. So people don't pay it; they can't afford to. And uh, obviously, twenty nineteen came round again, and uh, people were people were left high and dry to to pardon the pun. Um, so there has been a real battle with. Uh, people in these at homes who were really trying to get something from the insurance companies. Now, some people are back on their feet. Some people are still trying to really recover and get these uh, insurance companies to to basically pay out. So uh, 
throw in the COVID-19 pandemic and it's been a really, really tough uh, situation for those people. Um, just quickly on to kind of the um, the latest uh, as up till now. So the Environment Agency has been doing work uh, along the Don. Uh, a couple of points on the kind of the, the um, you know, the renewal process of, of that area and the, and the flood defences and whatnot. Um, there was a row at the time uh, a couple of months ago when uh, the government announced uh, a batch of flood money. And interestingly enough, I read the uh, Gov.co.uk document and Doncaster surprisingly wasn't on there. Now, I kind of asked around and stuff, and the government had kind of said that, off the record, that this was a kind of a scheme which affected the Don the Don Valley across South Yorkshire. So they said the stuff going on in Sheffield will help further down the Don. Now, people in Doncaster on the ground don't see it that way. They, they, they see a Sheffield getting the, the flood money and Doncaster isn't. So there is this big argument about uh, Meadow Hall, for example, you know, massive shopping centre in Sheffield serves, you know, South Yorkshire and North Derbyshire wider generally for people's shopping habits. A lot of people would have been there this Christmas. It's had a lot of money in that Don Valley, um, River Don area. Now, people in Doncaster are saying, why is a big shopping centre getting all the money? And whereas people who live further up the Don are not getting it. Now, kind of what the Environment Agency, what I've had to decipher is, is that what they're saying is, is that quite rightly or wrongly, um, whatever kind of way you put on this, they say that um, this is done on an economic basis. So 150 homes in Conisborough, which I'll just get onto in a minute, is worth far less than Meadowhall Shopping Centre, which is worth millions to the economy, supports thousands of jobs, and you know is a massive part of the South Yorkshire economy. So there is this big argument about if you can fund Meadowhall, then you can fund you know, people's actual homes further down the Don. Now, on to Conisborough, the latest on that is um, the local councillor there, his, uh, Lonnie Mayball, uh, has gathered over a 1,000 signatures on a petition, which is, uh, you know, from covering council meetings, Rob, you'll know that is an extraordinary number of, uh, you know, uh, signatures on a, a council petition uh, to really push the Environment Agency to install what they're calling adequate flood defences. They're saying not, not, not a lot has been done. In that area, Connersborough was hit by flooding, but not on problems probably on the same scale as Fish Lake and Bentley. Um, but you know, it's kind of the the feeling there that they're saying they're not getting a fair share of this pie, Rob. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, mean, I guess it's uh, yeah, it, it it always comes down to money, doesn't yeah. it? And uh, the the unwillingness or unwillingness of central government to uh, part with the part with the cash, and that's going to continue, uh, I guess, and we'll. We'll all keep our fingers crossed that there's no kind of a repeat of last winter in uh, in Doncaster or any any part of Yorkshire. In fact, um, the I, I guess it wouldn't be a, a political podcast if we didn't talk about COVID, mm-hmm. uh, which is the sort of uh, ever present uh, thing in our lives. And I've got the um, uh, the, the weekly sort of uh, number of cases per one hundred thousand, uh, courtesy of the Press Association, in front of me, mm-hmm. and it looks like. Um, Doncaster is not quite at the top of the list at the moment, and it's actually the number of cases per 100,000 has fallen a bit. Mm. But obviously, a few weeks ago, when South Yorkshire went into Tier 3 before the national lockdown was imposed, Doncaster was one of the hardest hit areas of of, of the country. So I, I guess that, you know, rates are still high. So I, I'm assuming that's still a, a big uh, a, a big issue of importance uh, to local local leaders in Doncaster. 
it is, and the council have have been extremely concerned. I've spoken privately with 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 some, you know, relatively high ranking council people uh, in, in various other places, and they are they are slightly less concerned now, but they're still they're still very concerned about uh, the rates. Um, the council, in fairness, um, was quite early to set up a uh, kind of an overview board, so they invited everyone, and including the press and the public, to kind of see from the ground what was happening and um to, you know we one of really helpful meetings where the director of public health really explained this uh, the data and the stats and he was very forthright when i've spoken to him dr dr rupert suckling he, he you know he wasn't uh you know giving out politicians answers or, or whatnot he really spelled it out and which was you know quite for myself and others were quite grateful for that kind of information so the figures at the moment um are less than what they were i think doncaster roughly could have nearly had a a rate of about 600 per 100,000 infections, which is very, 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 very high. It's now down nearly half of that. It's about 360 from what I've seen so far. Um, the council as well was in the spotlight um, only months only months ago when uh, around the St. Ledger Festival, you know, hugely important for the Doncaster economy. I can't stress that enough. Hundreds of you know, 100,000 people come into the borough to watch uh, some great horse racing. Um, you know, they allowed a certain number of fans in, but once the data dropped uh, on the second day of the morning, they had to cancel it because there was a massive spike. It wasn't obviously from St. Ledger, but obviously the feeling was is that the council had to act at that point because they um, were under, and to be honest, they got a lot of praise for, for stopping fans coming to St. Ledger because. They were concerned about what happened at Cheltenham back in March, albeit a different scenario with less fans in Doncaster, but they had to make a decision. There was massive pressure from the you know people involved in horse racing, uh, a lot of businesses who had hotels and stuff. There was a real um there was a real backlash from that. But I think generally from the from the general population, they were actually very supportive of the council for, for stopping people coming in. I think uh, you know they, they got some praise for that. So they've had to take the tough decisions in that regard. Now, on to kind of hospital admissions. Now, a couple of weeks ago, this was a, a big concern. There was over 200 people in hospital with COVID and across the trust, which includes Doncaster Hospital, Mexborough Hospital and Worksop in North Nottinghamshire, across the trust, there was over 500 members of staff off either isolating or um, uh, because of another family member with COVID or having COVID themselves. So it is has been a real... Uh, you know, sticking point hospital admissions. Now, they have started to come down, um, although, um, you know, the Director of Public Health during the, you know, the height of Doncaster's COVID, uh, you know, kind of scenario that we're living through now, even went as far to say um, during the um, during the tiered system, uh, when we had some weeks and stuff and extra restrictions, he even went so far as say is that it, he said something like, it's clear to me that people aren't aren't sticking by the rules. Now, you know, a lot of politicians have been quite, um, re- you know, reserved in saying that because basically they don't want to blame the general public. But obviously, there's only so much they can do in keeping people indoors and sticking to the guidelines. So the council, from kind of a, an impartial standpoint, I, I think I've done a, I think I've done a very good job. They put money in early to places before the government furlough scheme came in. They uh, put up the money. Uh, the mayor took an executive decision with the powers that she has uh, to uh, initially give five million pounds uh, to certain organisations to carry on the work and stuff, and they've been trying to help the NHS as much as they can. So, in terms of COVID, uh, probably the headline is is that you know it's looking promising, but definitely not out of the budget, Rob. 
Yeah, absolutely. And both these two topics you've already brought up, I guess, inevitably feed uh, into the way people will uh, act uh, at the ballot box. And obviously, with uh, this this summer, we would we would have had a a slate of local elections, uh, which we didn't have a lot. So a lot. Uh, is being put back until next summer and uh in doncaster there's a host of different uh, uh interesting elections going on what what can you tell us about that yeah so kind of away from the away from the doom and gloom is a bit a, you know kind of looking towards the future and potentially a bit of normality so may 2021 it's uh, election time in doncaster so the difference with doncaster to say sheffield is that every single councillor um is up for election at the same time. So if you're chosen as a councillor, you do serve the four-year term until the next election, whereas in Sheffield, you might have three councillors per ward. One councillor gets elected, then the next year, another councillor's up for election, and then they're all up for election. It's a bit of a confused system. So Doncaster, they they had away with that back in just before 2017 and said, look, we're going to have a four-year term. The mayor gets elected on the same day as the councillors. So um, there, is, there is that to look forward to. Now, Ros Jones is... Um, He's going for a third term as Labour mayor. Um, she did say uh, back in 2019 that she would stand again uh, in 2021. Um, and, you know, in 2017, the mayoral election will, will take that for now. Um, you know, she was a clear she, she was a clear winner. Um, a couple of independent local Doncaster candidates did relatively well for, for independence. The, the Tory candidate came second. Uh, roughly by about, I think it was over seven thousand votes away. I'm gonna have to check that. Uh, you know, but the guy was the guy was parachuted in from Watford. Now, you know, there's you'll know Rob's, you know, as a as a adopted Yorkshireman that you know people do take issue with, you know, people being parachuted in and you know they're not representing, the, you know, they're not from the area, they're not representing the local community as such. So, um, so the Tories. It's a difficult one because the Tories moving forward would probably say that on the back of the 2019 election, they really want to carry this momentum on. They really want to push on. And, you know, people can't forget that Doncaster elected their first Tory MP since ooh, 1955, I think. I might be some years off that, but it is in a rough time frame. It was the first one for, you know, six, seven, six, seven decades now they wanted to carry on that momentum and to feed down into local level, but what I've been kind of been told on the ground is that you know in in council elections national policy and national things going on definitely do affect what happens on the ground, albeit somewhat different with local issues. So what I've been kind of been told from Labour and Conservative sides is that you know the COVID nineteen pandemic and how it's been handled, some people think that it might hurt their chances. Going forward into 21, uh, the Tory candidate this time around, as opposed to 2017, is from Doncaster. He was a former councillor. Uh, I think he, he st- stepped down as a councillor for Tickhill uh, to take care of his young family at the time. He's now making a comeback. Uh, James Hart is the Tory candidate there. Um, there has been a bit of controversy over him um, with some comments he made regarding the leadership of uh, the Labour uh Labour Mayor Ros Jones, uh, she hit back on a blog post, said it was it resorted to resorted to some you know type of bullying, uh, and but I think you know some of it could be construed as that, but to be honest, I think it's a lot of it's just political theatre uh, in that respect. So it's going to be an interesting election in twenty twenty one. All the councillors are up for election, the mayoral uh, election as well, and it just kind of reminds people that this should be kind of turning back to some normality, Rob, in that respect. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and hopefully there won't be any uh, impediments to people uh, voting uh, in, in the elections uh, this this time. It, and it, we should be, uh, at least according to the experts, back to something approaching normality by the time, uh, by, by that time. Now, um, the next uh, topic you brought up is uh, is trees. And I know when, when you think about trees being cut down and controversy mm. in South Yorkshire, most people tend to think of uh, Sheffield and there's something the Yorkshire Post has covered uh, in some length, but actually there's there's a similar situation or, or has been uh, in in Doncaster as well. What um, just t- take us through that? Yeah, it all looks like deja vu, Rob. Especially for me, you know, living in Sheffield, covering the you know the Sheffield protests as well. Um, this on an albeit a smaller scale, but some of the things that have going on and been said are very, very, very similar to what happened in Sheffield and how that snowballed pretty much out of control and it was an absolute travesty for Sheffield Council in that respect and obviously the local government ombudsman report has reflected that so the situation in Doncaster just to I'm not labouring on this too long because it's still quite an emerging story but I thought it was interesting to point out in 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 times that we're in so uh, Middlefield Road in Bessica lovely tree line road 64 trees along the road now the council initially uh, has uh, lobbied the the residents and said, you know, we need the pavements to be uh, fixed, so we need to take the trees out. So at the time, uh, some residents were for it, some residents were against it, but the council went on. Now, campaign groups such as the Green Party in Doncaster got wind of this and, uh, you know, really complained about this back in January. This was before the pandemic, so this was kind of, you know, all in normal times. The problem was, is that for the council, is that they kept, they roughly ignored the campaign as they, they continued, but this was uh, this was brought to the attention of uh, Paul Powsland, who was the barrister in London who uh, defended the Sheffield Tree campaigners. He uh, really was the driving force in stopping the council at the time because he uh, suggested that the council were breaking the law or suggested they were breaking the law because they hadn't had a, uh, a licence from the Forestry Commission. So the council, uh, I think, were, were quite taken aback as to how... Um, you know, how strong it came across and they had to really go back to the drawing board. So they went back to the Forestry Commission. What they're, what the council are saying now is that the Forestry Commission have said to them that they don't need a licence to carry on with the felling. So the council have resumed in the last couple of weeks. Now, there's been a standoff with protesters, not on the same scale as Sheffield, but, you know, the, the Doncaster campaigners have, have uh, gone in and similar uh, gone in to do similar uh, types, types of protesters as Sheffield one. So they stand under the trees, for example, uh, to, to stop them coming down. So, but just to kind of uh, round this up, Rob, on this topic is that the campaigners are basically saying, like Sheffield, is that you don't need to rip a tree up just to save the pavement. There is other ways you can do. And Sheffield has started to adopt this now. So all they're saying is is that the council kind of stop this and come to some sort of uh, conclusion. Uh, I also forgot to say that one person was arrested uh, last week and four people, four campaigners were given fines relating to breaching COVID regulations. Now, the arrest has been annulled and the four fines have been uh, rescinded. So, um, you know, it kind of came to a bit of a flashpoint, but it's kind of the, the police have actually stepped back and had a look at this. And obviously they've got lessons to be learned from the previous uh, situation in Sheffield. So this uh, it's an interesting one, Rob. Yeah, Absolutely, and uh, I'm I'm sure that will that that will rumble on as the as the Sheffield saga uh, did for many months. Um, so the final the, your final topic, uh, whenever we talk about leveling up, and obviously you know the in Doncaster was one of the areas where that mantra was repeated uh, and might have played a, a role in last uh, 
December's election results, um, infrastructure and, and the, the the amount that's spent on it and where it goes is is always a big thing, and that's that's equally true uh, in in Doncaster, isn't it? So, what are the big infrastructure projects uh, that people uh, are sort of interested in 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 your part of the world? So yeah, I just wanted to give a, a bit of a bit of optimism in this respect because I think before the COVID nineteen pandemic, Rob, there was a real sense from you know the council, and you know they're going to say this because they're you know because they're biased, but even for for me as a kind of an impartial reporter, kind of looking at the bigger picture, is that Doncaster in in some respects was really on the cusp of something quite quite good in terms of had a lot of projects in the pipeline. They were really pushing ahead with this agenda of uh, you know trying to trying to, you know, uh, revamp the town centre. The council, you know, uh, when a private operator pulled out, they put their own hand in the pocket to build a cinema. Uh, there's other uh, projects underway. The new library is going to be opening soon. Um, you know, so there's so there's, so there's really good things to be positive about in Doncaster. Uh, extra development around the iPort system where, um, you know, the Tory MP there and, and, you know, privately the two Labour MPs in Doncaster want a, a, a free port. Uh, around uh, the iPort Centre, so there is a lot of things to be kind of um, kind of buoyed by, really, as such. So with that, again, Doncaster Sheffield Airport, uh, good and bad, good and bad sides around that. So obviously, um, you know, it, it really has the potential to be. And I know, I know, we talk about Leeds Bradford a lot, but in terms of Doncaster Sheffield Airport, it really has the potential to be Yorkshire's airport. It's got the longest runway. It's got so much space around the airport that you know there's. Um, you know, logistics companies really interested in the land, and there's so much interest in that in that area. The transport links are really good for Doncaster as well, so that plays it that plays into its favour. So there's lots of good things to be kind of in the future be quite positive about. Now we, we talked about the leveling up agenda, and kind of one of the things that you know I was really surprised by is that um, Nick, Nick Fletcher, the MP for Don Valley, was elected back in December 2019. And I think the fir- uh, basically he went to Matt Hancock and said, Doncaster Royal Infirmary is in bits. We need a new hospital. Now, the new hospital uh, scheme was announced a few weeks ago. Interestingly, Matt Hancock, the first uh, visit uh, to a constituency uh, outside his normal ministerial duties was to Doncaster. He went to the Royal Infirmary. This was seen as a, a great thumbs up for Doncaster to say, oh, you know, and there was some real confidence that there was going to be a new hospital in Doncaster. Fast forward some months and Doncaster's not on the list for a new hospital. So that was kind of the kick in the teeth, number one. Kick in the teeth, number two, is that, you know, transport ministers came up to uh, Doncaster Sheffield Airport. Um, they want, they said it was a shovel-ready scheme to get a, uh, a train station to the airport. It was. It seemed from, from, the, from the press conference of speaking to ministers when I was there, they seemed really, really interested in this. Fast forward to the uh, fast forward to the scheme later on and that was shelved as well. So, you know, people did think that um with the visits of Matt Hancock and ministers to Doncaster Sheffield Airport for a new railway station that these two projects linked with the railing uh, leveling up agenda would have come to fruition. Now, that's not happened. So I know the local Tories here are quietly quite frustrated at the government and, uh, you know, and the local Labour have really, you know, piled on and said, you know, you like to Tory MP, but, you know, the government still doesn't care. Yeah, absolutely. There, there were a lot of promises made, weren't there, back mm. in, uh, around the election and, and shortly afterwards. And obviously the, the pandemic 
has got in the way and that you know what that's done to the public finances i guess we'll uh obviously the chancellor is going to be giving his uh his spending review uh in a, in a few days time and we'll uh then i suppose get a sense of how uh, how many of these promises are going to be viable in the long term and whether uh you know the 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 leveling up agenda is going to be more than more more than words so perhaps we, we should we should come back to this discussion uh george in a few weeks or months time and see uh whether doncaster is in fact getting the hospital or whether whether you know you know high speed rail is is, is coming with all, all, all these different things that were, were promised uh, and that people think may possibly not happen so um george thank you very much for your time it's a uh, fascinating there's a, there's a lot going on in doncaster yes. uh, that i think maybe people might not have known about and um should we, should we talk about it again in a few weeks sure yeah i'd love to rob thanks a lot perfect well that sounds great well thank you again and we will see you next time bye-bye listening to Pod's Ode Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and you also heard from our political editor, Rob Parsons, today as well. Now, if you could take some time to share, to subscribe to, or leave a review to the podcast, we'd be really, really grateful. It really helps to boost us in the charts and compete against all those big podcasts that we don't necessarily have the resources to produce. But we would love if you could help us out with that. You can find me on Twitter at jerry underscore e underscore l underscore scott and you can find rob at rob parsons yp and we'll be back next week with another episode